So we are continuing in our journey through Genesis, and we're going to pick up one last story about Abraham before we move on to the next generation, and it's another doozy. It happened in the midst of the Isaac and Ishmael stories we've been telling. It's, it's uh, plugged in there in the middle of that larger narrative, and I promise next week's story will be lighter <laughs> than the last three weeks. So, we're reading from, we're telling the story from Genesis 18 and 19. One afternoon, God was with Abraham, and God said, The cries of injustice from Sodom and Gomorrah are countless, and their sin is very serious. I will go down now to examine the cries of injustice that have reached me. Have they really done all this? If not, I want to know. God, are you serious? Are you really going to kill the innocent along with the guilty? What if there are 50 innocent people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not save it for the sake of 50 good people? That's not like you. You are the judge of the world. So act like it. Act with justice. Okay, fair enough. If I find 50 innocent people in the city of Sodom, I will save them because of them. Well, since I've already started down this road, I know you're God, and I'm just a mortal, but what if they're Five fewer than 50. Will you destroy the whole city over just five? Hmm. If I find 45 good people, I won't destroy it. What if there are 40? For the sake of 40, I will do nothing. Don't be mad, but how about 30? I won't do it if I find 30 there. Well, we've already gone this far. How about 20? Okay, I won't do it if there are 20. Don't be mad, but what if there are just 10? Fine, Abraham. I will not destroy it because of those 10. And then we shift to chapter 19. Two messengers, who looked like people, came to uh, Sodom in the evening one night. They were messengers from God. And Lot, Abraham's nephew, was sitting at the gate of the city when these visitors came up. And he said, please, 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 come over to my house. Stay with me. And they said, oh, no, we couldn't do that. And he said, no, you have to. And so they went with him, and he prepared a huge feast for them. Then that night, right before everyone was going to go to sleep, a huge mob came to the door and banged on the door and demanded, send those foreign visitors out here so that we can have our way with them, so we can assault them. Lot said, no, 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 don't do this. He went outside to try and stand up for his visitors 
He said, you can have my two young daughters instead, but don't do anything to these visitors. But the mob wasn't satisfied with that and started to attack Lot. And so the divine messengers who were inside grabbed Lot, pulled him inside, slammed the door shut, and blinded all the people right there by the door so they couldn't get him. And they told Lot, we are going to destroy the city because of this evil. So at dawn, you should take your family and flee. When morning came, Lot hesitated. He wasn't so sure about leaving. So the messengers bodily grabbed Lot and his family and drug them outside of the city and said, Run! Flee! Don't look back! Just run for the hills! And Lot again hesitated and said, Well, what if I don't want to go all the way to the mountains? Could I just go to this little city over here? And it's fine. Just go. Run. Don't look back. And as they were running, God rained down fire, asphalt from the sky, and destroyed all of Sodom and the city next door, Gomorrah, and all the fertile land around the cities, the whole valley. While Lot and his daughters were running for their lives, Lot's wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. The word of God for the people of God. It's another one that's hard to say thanks over, isn't it? It is such, to me, a weird story. Every beat of it seems weird to me. And if you want an even more strange and unsettling story, read the last part of chapter 19. When you go home or if you get bored with what I'm saying, that's fine. Go read chapter 19 and see how strange things can really get. Here, for the first half, Abraham is haggling with God as if he's trying to buy a used car. And then the scene shifts. And there's this unaccountably violent mob. And Lot offers up his own daughters, which, how is that righteous? And then when they're fleeing, Lot's wife looks back and is turned into a pillar of sodium chloride? What is this story? And why would we read it in church? I think there are at least two reasons to read it together. One is because this text is used very hurtfully in Christian arguments about sexuality. And it's worth talking about that. And second, because Abraham's conversation, argument with God in the first part of this is one of the fiercest, bravest conversations with God in the whole Bible. For the first part, what does this story have to say about homosexuality? 
Nothing. It's a trick question. <laughs> not a thing. You didn't miss it. It's not what the story's about. In fact, the actual Hebrew doesn't say that the mob was just made up of men. The word is related to Adam, the word for all humanity. So the whole city of Sodom came out in this angry, violent mob. The story, to me, clearly says sexual assault and mob violence are wrong. I can get on board with that, but it says nothing about loving, consensual, adult relationships between people of any gender. It's not what the story's about. And what's more, I will not take my sexual ethics from a story that endorses offering up one's children for assault. It's not what this story is about. It is a story of violence against foreigners who are in need of aid and says that violence against foreigners who are in need of aid is wrong. We don't much like to imagine God around and smiting people. Those are the passages we tend to skip. But if someone's going to be smited, these folks seem like fair candidates. Behavior like this warrants consequences. As horrifying as chapter 19 is, it has a sort of logic to it. It says when you do bad stuff, God will see and there will be punishment. God is fair. The people in Sodom were clearly awful. They got what they deserved. The end. That sits uneasily with me. Makes me nervous, not just because of the smiting, although there's that, but also because of how it's set next to chapter 18, next to this conversation between Abraham and God. Chapter 18 is like a minority report or a dissent from the bench. It takes the conventional worldview of chapter 19 and undermines it in some ways or offers an alternate vision. If chapter 19 is the teacher who says, if one more person makes a peep, you're all losing recess, chapter 18 is the kid who argues back and loses recess for everybody. We tend to think of good and bad as a point system. I think intuitively, that's kind of how we think about it. You do good stuff, you get points. You do bad stuff, you lose points. And at the end of the day, you hope you have some points left. 
If a society does more damage than it does good, then it is corrupt and deserves its downfall. And as we, as individuals, we hope at the end of the day, the good we do will outweigh the bad. Because if it does, then we're good. Good enough to be loved. Worthy. If we can just be good enough. But how good do we have to be? What if we make some mistakes? What if we hurt people? Do things we regret? How strict is this point system? How much is that mistake I made yesterday going to cost me in this math? That's Abraham's question. Are we stuck, God, with this system of keeping score? Judging the guilty, no matter what mitigating factors there might be? Or is there another way? Could a little bit of good redeem whole host of bad. Abraham's arguing a bold possibility here. Could the world be different? Are we stuck with this tit-for-tat accounting system that seems in some ways to be built in to the human makeup? Or is there another way? He doesn't just ask politely. He argues. The script Beth and I read isn't that far off from the actual text. Here, in this minority report in chapter 18, God says, yes. We're not judged just by the worst thing we've ever done. But then we have this story of destruction, and it's like the conversation in 18 never happened. I mean, maybe there really weren't 10 good people in the whole city. But really, could all of the people only been evil all of their lives? It's hard to imagine that's the case. There's a tension between the two. It's not resolved. And that's one of the things I love about our Bible. There are these contradictions, these arguments within the text, and they're far too often to be a coincidence. In fact, I think the storytellers and the writers and the editors who chose to keep these conflicting narratives in were inspired in their choice to do that. God is too big to be confined to one tradition. 
putting these two stories next to each other is an honest reflection of our struggle between these two ways of understanding God and understanding ourselves. Part of us is drawn to the apparent simplicity and fairness of chapter 19. People who do bad things deserve what's coming for them. But it's hard math to live by. We wonder with Abraham, what about the innocent? What about mercy? Can a little bit of righteousness make a difference? What about the tiny seeds of goodness, the wheat growing up with the weeds, the sparks of light in the night? Could that be enough? Or at least a starting place? Is reality ultimately about tit-for-tat scorekeeping? And if that's what God is like, is that what we are supposed to be like as well? Or is there another way? Could there be forgiveness, grace, mercy, space for something new? To come forth. This argument that Abraham presses is like a little crack in the foundation of the whole structure of punitive judgment. And then there's Lot's wife turning to salt at the very end. No one knows what to make of that. People over the years have sometimes suggested she was too dumb to know what to do, or that she was so sinful she didn't want salvation, or that she loved her material possessions so much she'd rather die than live without them. I don't quite know where that comes from in the text, but I wonder if she is a counter-witness. If she turned back, not out of sinfulness, but because she couldn't bear the grief of so many people losing their lives. If she turned back out of compassion, solidarity, Commitment to at least witness what was going on. The tension isn't resolved. We live in between these two understandings of justice. And what gives more life? Living by keeping score tallying things up, working to always be good enough so that we don't deserve destruction? Or is there space for mercy, 
for ourselves, for the people who hurt us. Can we live into the courage of a fierce old man who was willing to argue back with God for a mercy that is messy and life-saving? May we have that kind of fierce faith. Amen.